Hi, everyone. I'm Joan Obra. And I'm Ralph Gaston. And we're your hosts of Catch Me Up to Speed, a podcast that helps you deconstruct the news like a journalist. As former reporters, we kept fielding questions about the news from family and friends. Questions like, what's real? What's fake? What's important? And what's noise? To help you answer these questions for yourselves, we launched this podcast with tips for studying the news in 2020. So guys, we haven't seen you in a little while. Actually, it's been more like a long while. (laughs) Um, The farm got busy, the holiday season came, and other things came up and we had to step away for a bit. But it gave us some time to really think about this podcast as we have a number of new episodes planned for the next few months. Yeah, we want to make sure to keep giving a lot of solid content in the podcast, and that means getting a lot of sources, doing the analysis, and backing up our statements. And that, of course, takes time. So we've thought about this while realizing that we can't have the pace of many other podcasts, which have daily or weekly content. And what we realized is that's really not the path we want to follow. We think the podcast would, frankly, suffer if we tried to. So this is going to be a periodical space where we try to get into deeper issues about history and media and politics. So guys, that means we may have three episodes within two months, and then it may only happen once every six weeks. But uh, Ralph seems to like Spoutable, you know, I do. that new platform that's come up in, in, with all the different alternatives to Twitter or X or whatever it is now. Yeah. <laughs> so um, we'll go ahead and put a link to our Spoutable account there, and you guys will see him more active there. Um, and you'll also see us here more in the coming months but we're working on more ways to catch you up to speed than just the podcast. And that said, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. So the last time we got together with you guys, we spent two episodes talking about the upcoming Supreme Court session and some of the big cases they'd be taking on. Yeah, it was quite the session, from the early announced decisions that upheld the Indian Child Welfare Act and Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, specifically pertaining to Alabama and Louisiana congressional maps. Both of those were struck down as discriminatory and therefore unconstitutional. But, as is their custom, the Supreme Court decisions that were announced in the last week of June held the most impact. Now, you might remember from our last podcast that we talked about the potential impact of Moore versus Harper, right? This was the case that was arguing for the quote-unquote independent state legislature theory. That decision was essentially removed from SCOTUS consideration thanks to some developments in the North Carolina state legislature. So that issue is still important, but the impact of the case was not the biggest decision from the Supreme Court in their last term. Instead, there were three big cases that ended the session. There was one about affirmative action, the other one known as the 303 creative case, and the Biden student loan relief case. We're going to start with the June 29th announcement. In a 6-3 decision, the Supreme Court struck down affirmative action in the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard case. And they followed up with two more announcements. First one being the 303 creative case where in a 6-3 decision, the 303 Creative website was allowed to refuse service to the LBGTQIA plus community on religious grounds. And there were actually two cases having to deal with student debt relief. The court dismissed Biden versus Nebraska, citing a lack of standing. 
And the other case, Department of Education versus Brown, where the Supreme Court voted, 6-3, to three, that the use of the HEROES Act to cancel $430 billion of student loan principal was not allowed. It's really a lot to take in. Yeah, it really is. And it got us to looking at the workings of this era of the Roberts Court and how it's been just this continuous assault on the civil rights era. From the Shelby County versus Holder decision in 2013 to the Dobbs decision last year striking down Roe v. Wade, man, the move to dismantle the gains of the last 50 years have just touched many of our lives at this point, right? Yeah. And what also stands out is the people who are spearheading the drive to dismantle all of these laws, all of this precedent that we've come of age with. Now, in past episodes, we've talked about Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society and their role in shaping the judiciary. But you know what, Ralph? I think we need to catch people up to speed on another important name. And this one is Edward Bloom. Yeah, he's getting a lot of attention of late, and for good reason. But if you've never heard of Ed Bloom, let me give you a synopsis. Bloom is from an era of what we now call neoconservatives. And in the early 1990s, he ran for a congressional seat in Texas as a Republican, and he lost. Bloom then teamed with other financial supporters to challenge the composition of the congressional district that he lost in claiming that it was gerrymandered in an extreme way solely based on the race of its inhabitants. That case, Bush versus Vera, made it to the Supreme Court in 1996 and Bloom won in a 5-4 decision. Oh, but this was not his last run at the Supreme Court. In fact, Bloom has pushed seven cases to the Supreme Court, but we want to highlight a few to show the impact it's had on our lives. So earlier I mentioned the 2013 decision, Shelby County versus Holder, right? This is the case that saw the court in another 5-4 decision decide that Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, the quote-unquote pre-clearance portion, was unconstitutional. A quick definition of pre-clearance was simple. In states where voters of color, especially black voters, had been historically disenfranchised, any changes to the state's voting laws or practices had to be pre-cleared by the Department of Justice. Bloom disagreed, and in 2005, he started an organization called Project for Fair Representation. This organization was launched just in time for the renewal of the Voting Rights Act, which Congress passed in 2006, despite lobbying by Bloom and his new organization. But that didn't stop him, because seven years later, Project for Fair Representation was providing counsel to Shelby County. And what Bloom couldn't do with Congress, he got done at the Supreme Court. But this was not the only line of attack for Bloom. That same year, his group also backed a case brought by Abigail Fisher, who was suing the University of Texas in Austin. Fisher alleged that the university denied her admission because of her race. It was a direct attack of affirmative action. Well, the court ruled for the university in 2013, and again in their second case brought before the court in 2016. But just as the second case was set to go before the court, Bloom was already changing course. He realized that he would want to make his plaintiff look different to maximize the impact. And so he went looking for Asian applicants to Ivy League schools. And if you don't believe me, listen to him say it himself at a Houston Chinese Alliance event in 2015. That's the goal 
of these lawsuits is to eliminate the consideration of race or ethnicity in, uh, in applying. So, I, um, I needed plaintiffs. I needed Asian plaintiffs. And finding plaintiffs to challenge uh, the Ivy League admissions policies, Harvard in particular, is not an easy thing to do. So Bloom's solution was to start a new group in 2014. This one is called Students for Fair Admissions. The website openly recruits students who fit the profile Bloom was seeking to challenge affirmative action. But with the latest case, his argument was that consideration of race discriminates against Asian Americans. The Bloom was eventually contacted by Calvin Yang, a Chinese-Canadian student who had been denied admission to Harvard. And right then, Bloom had what he wanted. So fast forward to June 30th, 2023, and the decision handed down by the Supreme Court. And now, as a result, affirmative action is gone from college admissions. So I think you guys remember that Ralph and I met while we were students at UC Berkeley, right? Yes. Yeah. So well, Yang, I remember. Well, of course, you remember. But I think <laughs> we've told our listeners that before. Um, Yang is currently a student there. And here's why that's important. Back in 1998, Proposition 209 went into effect in California, and this banned racial preferences in admission to the state's public universities. So there's a whole generation of data to look at for the effects of this policy in California, right? Which is a state that during that time had between 30 and 40 million residents. So this is a really good sample size. It is, and, and what happened is in the year 2020, UC Berkeley School of Public Policy did just this kind of study. They looked at college admissions in the state from 1994 to 2002. It then tracked those young adults through to their professional careers. And the result was that they found the ban harmed black and Hispanic students the most. Their odds of finishing college were lower, so were the percentages of them going to graduate school. And when they tracked the postgraduate lives of students in that era, they earned a lower salary. At the same time, the benefits to the white and Asian American students who took their place was negligible at best. Meanwhile, these fights over higher education continue. A group called Lawyers for Civil Rights brought suit against Harvard College for legacy admissions. You know, this is when universities give admissions preference to relatives of alumni, right? they asked the Department of Justice to rule them a violation of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Ed Bloom also critiqued legacy admissions in the wake of the Supreme Court case, but his actions speak louder than any words. Bloom now runs another group called Alliance for Fair Board Recruitment, aimed at taking his ideological battle into the corporate and private sector, and they've wasted no time. No, they have not. In early August, Bloom's organization sued a venture capital firm called Fearless Fund, stating that their focus, which is on funding for black women entrepreneurs, was a violation of the 1866 Civil Rights Act. Following that up, in late August, Bloom's organization sued two major U.S. law firms, Perkins Coie and Morrison and & Forrester. The group claimed that both law firms were offering diversity-based fellowships that discriminated against white applicants. You know, we wanted to end this segment by highlighting part of the dissent of Justice Kentaji Brown Jackson. This is what she wrote in response to the court's affirmative action decision. Simply put, the race-blind admission stance the court mandates from this day forward 
is unmoored from critical real-life circumstances. Thus, the Court's meddling not only arrests the noble generational project that America's universities are attempting, it also launches, in effect, a dismally misinformed sociological experiment. Now, the other major case decided on the last day is one we cover less in this episode, but it may have ramifications we have to revisit in detail in a future one. This is a 303 creative case, where a 6-3 majority ruled that a website owner did not have to offer services to a gay couple. There is so much that seems off with this decision, starting with the fact that it's like a theoretical case and not an actual yeah. one, right? I mean, is that even allowed? It's really not supposed to be allowed. I mean, the case was based on something that could potentially happen, but not anything that actually did happen. That should violate the principle of judicial standing. In other words, that the plaintiff in any case has actually been harmed and thus has a real stake in the outcome. The plaintiff in this case, Lori Smith of 303 Creative, was not harmed because the events listed as the impetus to the case never actually occurred. Smith's contention was that she had firm plans to make her website, but didn't actually create it because it would have violated the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, which would have brought civil penalties and a fine. So what she did is she brought a pre-enforcement action against the act. That's what she put into the courts. Smith's contention was that Colorado's law violated the free exercise and free speech clauses of the First Amendment. Now, that argument was not accepted by the District Court or the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. But that outlook changed when the case made it to the Supreme Court, which sided with 303 Creative, the plaintiff in this case. So this is how something that was hypothetical became real and then the damage is done. What this highlights more and more is the movement coming to take apart laws and court decisions that have shaped the world we've known for the last 60 years. For example, only two weeks after the 303 Creative case was decided, a hair salon in Michigan announced they would refuse service to transgender and queer or questioning people. I mean, we're rapidly approaching the point, you know, where the bedrock decisions and laws of the 1960s civil rights movement are openly in danger of challenge and dismantling. And that would include both the 1968 Fair Housing Act and the landmark 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was centered on equal and open access to public accommodations. That act, of course, was the biggest first step to finally destroying Jim Crow segregation. So for those who've said in the past, if I were around when the civil rights era were going on, I'd be on their side, well... You don't have to look back. We are fully engaged in the same battle for equal rights and equal access again. And it's what you do and say that will matter. Mm-hmm. And just so you know, guys, I know we've mentioned this before, but Ralph is the first generation or in amongst the first generation in his family to be born outside of both chattel slavery and Jim Crow. Yeah. So this is something that's actually very deeply personal to us and to him in particular. It is still very much part of people who are living today. Mm -hmm. Well, guys, that is our show for today. Just stretching over here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. And if you have a question about this episode or any of our past episodes, you know, go ahead and let us know. 
drop us a line at hello at catchmeuptospeed.com and tell us something like, hey, Ralph and Joan, can you catch me up to speed on A, B, or C? And please like and subscribe to the podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more of your favorite platforms. And remember to give us a follow, leave a comment, leave a review. We want to hear from you. Follow us on Spoutable and on Instagram at Catch Me Up to Speed, the number two speed. And as always, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Talk to you again soon.